0: All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up the word of God to us this morning. Uh, Lord, as we go to Pergamum, God, uh, one of the northernmost cities in these seven letters, and we go and live life there for a moment uh, as a Christian in Pergamum in the latter part of the first century, Jesus, we pray that you would open up the word of God to us. And that we would just find one or two things that we can chew on. That we would be open, God, not closed. And we ask in Jesus' name, you come fill our, fill our church here in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Studying this passage, you know, you always want to try to, try to come up with a hook. And, and as much as I was trying to, you know, kind of deviate around a good way to introduce kind of the, the issues that this church raised... Uh, it, it has it has so many depths, so many layers that finally I just thought, you know, let's just go there. I mean, the best way to really begin to engage the text is we simply need to go there. So here's what I'd like to do. If i got to have all of you close your eyes. Now, if you need to take a cat nap, by all means, I can't say I haven't done it myself from time to time. So if you need to. You need a little two or three minute nod off, go for it. But for those of you who uh, have, you know, can be creative with we, me for a moment, uh, either kind of close your eyes or look down, don't, don't, don't focus on something, and let's just transport 2,000 years into the past and go to the city of Pergamum together. Not yet, though. Pergamum was a large university city in ancient Turkey, in the Roman province of Asia. Uh, It had one of the most extensive networks of temples, Uh, Zeus. I mean, Zeus was, you know, the god-god for for many of those people. Uh, Apollo was, you know, was the stud. I mean, he was what every man would want to be. You know, he had a great temple. Asclepius, he he was uh, uh, that god of healing. And, and, And so you had the snake intertwined around the staff. And, of course, people would come from all over the area to, to try to be healed, you know, drink the elixirs and potions that you could get at that temple. And then, as we found out last week, there's Dionysius, who is really, you know, the, 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 kind of the cheers God. You know, he had alcohol, wine, uh, agriculture, fertility, prostitution, you know, Dionysius was kind of the party temple. And so we've got four great, you know, draw, you know, tourism draws as people come to worship in all of these temples. So let's go there. Close your eyes with me. Or look down, or do whatever. You wake up one Sunday morning. You put on your various robes and your girdles and your tunic. You walk over to a pot and it has parsley in the pot. You pick up a pinch of that parsley and you begin to mash it in your teeth to take care of all that morning breath. You grab a water pitcher to wash your face. You rub oils into your skin, and then you rub various ground up powders in your armpits to prevent you from having BO. You lace up your sandals, and grab your leather skin canteen, and you walk out of your little 800 square foot house of stone or of clay, and begin about the mile and a half journey to this new thing called a church. This new buzzword, ecclesia. Now you've heard the word ecclesia before. It's when you went to vote. Or, or when you went to hear some uh, Roman official speak. They, they, they had an ecclesia, an assembly of people. But this word is being used in a different way. It's an assembly of people gathered under the banner of Jesus called the Christ. You're interested in this, Jesus, because Jesus is reputed to have the power to grant what everybody in Pergamum is seeking, the power to grant the cup of immortality. You're interested because only the gods are immortal. Can a human being actually live forever? As you're walking to your right, you see the great temple of Zeus with all its great big white marble pillars. And Zeus, Zeus requires a lot of food. And so you see all of the people lining up with their animals and their choice cuts of meat to give animal sacrifice to Zeus. And then you look to your left. To your left, you see all the people in bandages and crutches and canes, the sick lining up hoping that the great goddess Clepius will heal them or perhaps some potion or elixir will ease their suffering. And then straight ahead is this wonderful statue, big statue of that naked man called Apollo. And he has his, his, all of his temple guards and he is that symbol of strength and heroism. And then beyond, just to the left on a little plateau, is the temple of Dionysius. Dionysius boasts three beer gardens, wine tasting all day, and an exotic show after a hard day's work. Walking down the road, the road begins to fill with all sorts of people. Vendors selling little amulets and trinkets and, and meat to sacrifice. Linens and robes and vegetables. And as you keep walking, you, you have a friend bump in you. Say, hey, what, what are you doing? So, I, you know, I'm going to this thing called a church. to the the ones who worship the one they call Jesus the Christ. Really? Why are you going there? I don't know. This Jesus kind of intrigues me. Why does Jesus intrigue you? Well, all of these other great temples must bow to Caesar. What intrigues me is this church will not bow. Oh, that's intriguing indeed. You see, you and your friend... You have no love for the overtaxed empire. And you're curious to see what this small spiritual revolution might be. So you keep walking and you keep going. But when you show up at the church, you're shocked. You recognize many of the people. They had just worshipped in the temples. They had just ate the meat dedicated to Zeus or slept with some of the prostitutes of Dionysius or burned incense before Apollo, or drank the potions of Asclepius. Now you are confused, more confused than ever. And as you sit down in this wild bunch, all of a sudden a letter is delivered. It's a letter that they had been waiting for, a letter that they had been warned from Smyrna, one of their sister cities was coming. A letter from a convicted church leader exiled on an island far away and they were all eager to hear what this convicted apostle would say. It's so quiet you could hear a pin drop in the room as hearts began to pound because if John was anything he was known as a man of miracles and a man of power. And the courier begins to read. The courier gives the letter to the pastor and begins to read out loud. And this is what he reads. All right, you can open your eyes now. Come back to Bakersfield for a second. But still kind of be halfway there, sitting on that little stone bench. All right, here we go. Beginning in verse 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel, again, this is to the the church leader, the pastor, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has a sharp, double edged sword. Now, remember, I told you uh, last week that Jesus always tailors his address to the church with something that correlates to the church, right? Uh, with Ephesus, uh, he, you know, he, he talked about. Uh, you know, being, what was it, the Alpha, or that was the Smyrna, the Alpha and Omega. You know, he always has some sort of description about himself that kind of previews what he's going to be talking about with that church. In this one, he chooses the sword, which is very, very applicable to Pergamum. Because Pergamum was one of the few cities in ancient Rome, or ancient Asia Minor in Turkey, that could execute capital punishment. Uh, you could be killed in in Pergamum uh, for a crime against the state. And the Roman proconsul who would deliver that verdict, his symbol was a sword. And so Jesus, once again, identifying and correlating with the city, the city that bears the sword, says, I am the one. Who has a sword? Essentially, he's saying, "I know you live in a city that has a sword, but I want—I want to remind you real quick. I have a sword too. I have a sword too." And so he says, "These are the words of him that has the sharp, double-edged sword." And really, you know, it's—it's—it's the sense of the sword is literally a sword of opposition, but it's also the sword of his mouth as Jesus speaks there's power in those words that has just as much power as that Roman sword had executing over the citizens of that community. Verse 13, I know where you live. Interesting. Of course you do. You're God. I know where you live where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Uh, So obviously, we have not just being arrested, being thrown in prison. uh, We have some people who are dying because they're beginning to follow this Jesus called Christ. Now, you know, this reference to Satan, you know, what, what can we kind of glean from that? Well, it could be the fact that this was not just a small pagan center of worship. This was a huge one. I mean, this, you know, four major temples, you know, perhaps just some of the spiritual aura from all of that was what Jesus was referring to. But, you know, to, to begin to locate evil in one place as opposed to another, you know, th- th- there can be darkness anywhere on the planet. So I'm trying to wrestle with myself cuz I I hear what the commentators are saying and they're they're trying to read into some of these things and of course the the Asclepius what was his what was his idol, right? A serpent. Right? And and for any good Old Testament Jew, when you got the symbol of a serpent, that's a direct reference reference to the devil, right? So who knows? Maybe this is the correlation that Jesus is making in this city who has this great temple with the image of the serpent that's where Satan lives but I would want to submit to you another something else to add to it have you ever been and I was thinking you know a while ago my wife and I we had taken a a trip and we were driving through northern Idaho and I won't say the name of the city but we drove into a city and stayed there for a little while and the city just had a weird vibe to it you ever walk into one of those uh, you know, where it just, there's kind of a, a heaviness over it. I mean, it's a small town. You have no reason to, to be on edge, yet you are, you know? And you, you're, you're just kind of wondering, something is a little off in this city. You can even kind of see it in the eyes of the people who are living there. You know, there's just something not right in this town. And, and so we didn't stay there, you know, kind of sensing this. We left early. It was like, you know, city kind of gives me the creeps. And, and, and so, you know, we, we, we just kind of, you know, did, did our thing there and left. About months later, I was describing this experience to somebody. I said, you know, I was driving through northern Idaho, and I had this really, you know, icky experience in a town over there. And I was telling somebody from my church, and he looked at me, and he said, boom, and he said the name of the city. And I was like, oh, yes, yes, that one. He goes, my wife and I, we felt that too. I don't know what it is, but there's just something. And I have a sense that Pergamum had that similar feel. Big, full of all of this stuff, but it was just decaying with a lot of this, the, these pagan ideals that, that were really, rather than freeing the people, holding them in a lot of, of bondage, holding them, holding them back. From really developing and growing As a society and as a city Just this kind of heavy fog That really, in some way or another You could go to Ephesus You could go to Thyatira You could go to Smyrna And yeah, you know Every city's got its darkness Everything's got its challenges But you walk into Pergamon You're walking around going Man, how can a city like this I just feel like there's some sort of weird fog over it You know There's parts of Seattle uh, Part where my first church was Saint You drive. You can. You can drive over one road, and as soon as you cross on the other side, you feel it. There's just something wrong. Everything's the same. Rite Aid was on this side. Walgreens on this side. Something's kind of weird. Don't you feel bad for Walgreens? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I just get a sense that there is a feel over this city that was more than just anti-God. It, it, there was a, a dark, heavy, oppressive feel where Satan lives. Now let's go to verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. He says, There are some of you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, ate food sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Verse 15. Revelation 2, verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. All right, let's 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 dissect this. Balaam was one of those Old Testament prophets, right? Uh he was one of those guys, if you've ever studied anything about the culture of this, they'd get a palm branch, right? And they would wave it at you and 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 so if you're traveling in a caravan or something, you'd go pay off the prophet for a blessing rather than a curse, right? Uh I mean maybe you know you, you, you could you could you know drive by and hope that you'd just get blessed and not have to pay. But if you wanted to guarantee, you know, you'd you'd go by that road and get a blessing from the prophet, you'd go, give him a little bit of money, bless the journey, and go off, all right? And they'd always wave the palm branch at you, you know, and and, and like this. Balaam was one of the big guys. He he was one of the real, well-known prophets of this area. And Balak is the king of Moab. Balak lives in this great area of the world. The Israelites are living in a desert. And he begins to see this looming shadow from the south gaining strength and beginning to inch its way north and forward. Balak's got a huge problem. This, this, this army is successful. They're organized, and they've been living in the desert for 40 years. They've got a lot of motivation to conquer a few cities, don't you think? So they're beginning to come, and Balak goes to Balaam because Balaam's one of the big guys. And he says, Here's some money. I need you to curse these people so that they don't conquer my towns. Balaam says, Great. Takes the money and tries to curse them, but he can't curse them. Instead, he invokes a blessing on the Israelites. And Balak is like, uh, I want my money back, you know? Uh, he said, "I didn't pay you to do that." And, and you know, Balaam's, I don't know what happened. I, I went to go bless them, and the words that came out of my mouth or curse them, and the words that came out of my mouth were a blessing. And Balaam's like, "All right, all right, well, let's try it again." So you know, they go through this dance until finally Balaam has an idea. He says, "Look, I have a really good idea. I know a little about these Israelites, and uh, and they, they they have some real prudish understanding in their sexual practices." why don't you get some of your Moabite women to hop the fence and go get some of these Israelite men, start intermarrying and having sex with them and getting all this prostitution going and what will happen is you will break down the unity and the family structure of the Israelites. You will weaken the nation. And perhaps your armies could conquer them while they're all divided and weakened as they're dealing with this, what's going on here. Or perhaps they'll be so weak, they'll just turn right around and go back. You won't have to worry about anything. And Balak's thinking, this is brilliant. I couldn't have thought of it myself. And so he says, here's even more money And yeah, I got some, I got some, we've got a thousand prostitutes in my city alone. I can drum up some more. We'll go and we will destroy the centrality of the family structure in Israel and so weaken them as a nation. And they did. It worked. It worked for a while until Moses, Joshua, and everybody starts getting wind of this. And they realize that that these things are happening and, and they go and they take care of the people who are doing this, recognizing that like a snowball, it would have a destructive force all over Israel. Yes. Don't you want to be in there? <laughs> See ya. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, the translation to Pergamum is it gives us a little insight into these people, the Nicolaitans. What what Jesus is seeing and John is writing is you've got some people who have come and they've said things like this, man. Jesus forgives you for everything. I mean, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know. We can, I mean, there you. there is unrestrained immorality because Jesus doesn't care about the body. He really only cares about the soul. And these people are going, really? Is that, that right? And oh like, yeah, you can go eat all the tri-tip you want that Zeus has got. He's got so much of it, he doesn't know what to do with it. And Dionysius, they've got, you know, another thousand girls from the east of the country. Go over, you know, I mean, you know, they're trying to, and this is the thing. They're not just saying, you know, okay, let's do this and not tell anybody about it. They are teaching this. That this is this is Jesus, that it's all fine with Jesus. It's no big deal because Jesus only cares about the soul. Never realizing that Jesus may actually draw a connection between the body and the soul. And so, here they go. Uh, and and, and the, the, you know... Is it that they were simply eating the tri-tip offered to Zeus? It wasn't that. It was what you had to say in order to eat that tri-tip. You know what you had to say? You had to say, believe it or not, even in Zeus' temple, you know what you had to say? You had to say, Caesar is Lord. And then you get your meat. You pay for it, but you get it. So in verse 16, Jesus says, Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Again, another allusion to Balaam uh, because who finally restrains Balaam, right? As he's walking, who's standing there? And he's got what in his hand? He's got, it's Jesus with a sword. It's it's the angel angel of the Lord with a sword. And so, you know, you get a sense that Jesus eventually... And this is kind of the whole admonition to the church here. Eventually, Jesus is standing with a sword. And and he, you know, he, he, he wants, he, it's not a threat. Jesus is saying, look, if things decay to such a level that rather than, than, than building up, there becomes destruction, then, yeah, we, we have to put, you know, the olive branch away and break out the sword for the good of the people. And so, uh, he another allusion to Balaam, but then we get to 17, which I think is one of the most beautiful passages in all scripture. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the, the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, only to the one who receives it. A few years ago, I had a young lady uh, come up, and she was one of those young ladies who came to our youth group because she was essentially dropped off. She didn't want to be there. Her parents made her come. Thought maybe if they got a little Jesus in her, she'd shape up, you know. And I'd always be like, great, thanks for, (laughs) thanks for, you know, thanks for that. So one day, I, I, I have a, a service where I, I told a little bit about my story of converting to Christianity. A little bit about how before, you know, I was really into sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, and when, I, when I converted to Christianity, it's as if I found something to live for. Something, something that was more powerful in my life than that. And, and I embraced it and went with it. So she came up with me afterward and she just looked me dead in the eye and she was just like, you know, if I don't believe in God... If I don't believe in Jesus If I don't buy in any of this stuff Then why shouldn't I Have sex And, and go out and do all these things I mean, what, what, Why is the church so prudish What's the big deal about all this And so I'm like trying to give Like non-biblical reason After non-biblical reason And, and she's just having none of it And I could tell I'm just getting nowhere and, and finally I said you know To be honest with you young lady If I didn't have Christ in my life I can't say I wouldn't be doing that either I said, but I found something more to live for. I mean, it's real. It's not just an obligation. There's something powerful in the connection that my spirit has with Christ that I don't want to let go of. I like it. I want it. It's for me. I choose it. If you're looking at me saying, I don't choose that and I don't want it. I I could sit here all day. There's going to be no reason you're going to buy us to not just go ahead and do whatever you want. I said, but I want you to think about something. We think like this. As a human being, we think often, you know, in the moment, only ourselves. Right? In the moment, only ourselves. I mean, yeah, you know, I try to plan for things 20, 30 years and all that. I don't even know if I'm going to be alive 20 or 30 years from now, you know? So really, when I, when I live, you know, it's kind of in the moment for myself. The way Jesus lives, Jesus lives seeing our whole lives and everybody on earth. Jesus lives with that perspective. So, okay, in the moment, only for yourself, you'll make some decisions. But Jesus is thinking, now, if everybody is in the moment only for themselves, all over the planet, I said, I'm telling you right now, if there were no boundaries to human behavior, as you're suggesting, and everybody all over the planet, over the scope of their lives, just we lived with this boundaryless society, I submit to you right now, I don't think you would like the earth that that would create. Believe it or not, there's a very good reason as to why Jesus teaches restraint in the areas he teaches restraint. She still didn't buy it, but I didn't expect her to. She had come up with her decision already made. I didn't necessarily uh, think that my reasoning would ever change that decision. What changes that decision is this. It's not just some obligation to Christ. It's a relationship with Christ. When I'm obligated to you, I might not care what you care about, quite frankly. You know? I have obligations and government, things like that. And, you know, I don't really always care about some of the things they care about. But I have an obligation, and, and, I, and I, so I fulfill it. But when I'm in relationship, all of a sudden, because it's important to you, that's important to me. Like with my wife and family, my kids. I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand it. But we are in relationship. We are in love and it is enough that it is important to you for it to be important to me. And that's what Jesus desires. Obligation doesn't work. Being dropped off, hope that the youth pastor, can you get some Jesus in there? Doesn't work. I explained that actually to the parent who did this. I mean, the rest of the story is eventually the girl did you know, have a powerful experience with God and come around, but but the the the, the banner is it, she couldn't get talked into it. No one's going to get talked into it. It's a relationship, a relationship where God becomes, where Jesus becomes a man you love, a man you want to listen to, a man who you want to look and see, what's Jesus' concerns? I may not understand all these restraints on sex, but... You know, Jesus, has, Jesus is concerned about it. He's worried if the whole planet decays in this area. He's worried about what, that, what kind of world that might create. You know, if he's worried about it, that's good enough for me. I could be worried about it. This relationship. This ending verse is all about relationship. Jesus says to the one who's victorious, I will give them three things. And you've got to know your Old Testament a little bit to know the significance of these three things. The first thing he gives is the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? There was the manna of the Old Testament that fell on the Exodus, the Israelites in the Exodus, and, and they ate from it. Is that the hidden manna? No. Not hidden if it's just there on the ground, right? The hidden manna is the manna that God told Moses. He says, Moses, I want you to collect some of this manna and I want you to put it in the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder, no matter what happens, if you stay true to me, I will provide for you. Do never fear that. Never fear that. Translation to Pergamum. You know, you know the, the big advantage of worshiping at one of these temples in Pergamum? You were part of the Commerce Guild. Your job, your money, your trade, your your retirement, everything was, was caught up in this temple system and where, you know, you were part of the Commerce Guild. In order to really get your stamp, you had to go burn incense to Caesar. They gave you this little certificate of compliance and now you can go out and get a job. You don't have it. You don't give that allegiance to the emperor. You don't call him your Lord and Savior and Deliverer. Trust in somebody else? Fine. You're not in the commissary guild. See what kind of jobs you can drum up under the table for people willing to take the risk to hire you. And Jesus says, "Don't worry about that. You are not going to be God's people who starves because you stick with me. I'm with you. I'm the God with the sword." I'm also the God with a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken in my hands. I can get it to you. I have the hidden manna. The hidden manna. And it's yours. But then he says the second thing. He, says, then it, he also says, I'll give you a white stone. There's two, two sides of interpretation on this. One is that the white stone is a judicial stone. If you were uh, uh, not guilty, if you were acquitted of a charge of a felony, the judge or the magistrates would give you a white stone. You had a white stone of acquittal, okay? If you were guilty, you, you, know, you would get the black stone. So you'd have a white stone of acquittal. And so you could carry that. I'm, I am not guilty. But, and that would be true of this text. However, he says, not only will I give you a white stone, but with a new name. Can anybody think of a stone that had a name on it? If you're at first service, it's cheating. Tombstone, that would be good. But that's not what we're talking about here. (laughs) What do you want on your tombstone? Pepperoni and cheese. No, anyway, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I love those commercials. Um, The white stone was on the breastplate of the high priest. And it had the 12 tribes of Israel engraved on the stone. Remember that? You might not, but I'm telling you now. Just trust me, it's there. So the great high priest of Israel had these stones and it was the 12 tribes of Israel and what Jesus is saying is I'm going to give you a new stone with a new name on it. So not only are you free from the rejection of, of, of these you know, kind of people who are following the devil but also the Jews who would reject you and say you're not in the tribes anymore. Cause I'm going to give you manna. I'm going to give you identity. You're going to be my people. And there will be a white stone with a new name on it. By the way, you know what the high priest had access to? The Ark of the Covenant. He'd wear that breastplate. And once a year, you know, they'd tie a rope around his feet. Because if he went in with sin in his heart, he'd die. So the legend goes. So they would tie a rope to the priest's feet because if they heard a thump on the ground they thought he would be dead, they'd just pull his body out and bury it. He alone had the responsibility and the right to wear that breastplate with the stones. And Jesus is saying, all of you now get the breastplate with the stones with a new name on it. And you have access to the hidden manna which was in that great Ark of the Covenant to the ones who are victorious. Let's go ahead and turn to our discussion guide. Rethinking church. Jesus' heart for doing church so far. Number one, Ephesus. We found in Ephesus a deep, sincere, unconditional love. Active love, not passive love. A love that is active. It doesn't just say, you know, oh, man, I know I should, you know, go and give Kirk a hug because, man, that guy really needs it. And then think about it for six months. It's saying, you know what? Get over here, buddy, right now. I love you, man. man. That is agape love. It's active love. It's doing it. Not just thinking about it. Number two is Smyrna. Faithful endurance. Faithful endurance. My heroes of the Christian faith are not the ones who had it easy, but the ones who had a thousand reasons to walk away from God, and they didn't. They stubbornly chose to stick through it even though they did not understand everything that was happening to them. And then number three, we get to Pergamum, a pure heart. Recognize why God warns us away from the things he warns us away from. So pursuing a pure devotion to God and actually having a chance at making it, here's four things I want you to think about this week. Number one, buy Truly settle in your heart whether or not you really believe. I think in the 21st century, especially in a Christian church, people are coming in, checking it out, questions. I spent the last decade of a youth ministry with teenagers saying, I really don't believe in this, but I am curious. I am interested. I'm trying to see if I can find the answer here. If I can't, I have other options. I'm trying this one out. And so there is a sense of buy-in. And I think Jesus makes it very clear. You know, there are other options. He's presenting himself as an option for buy-in. Is there really a bought-out, sold-out sense? That you're going to follow God, come what may. Number two is belief in Jesus specify your God. Uh, I just came from Seattle, Tacoma. When somebody said, I believe in God, you had no clue what they were saying. You know, they could believe in a tree for all you know. You know, I mean, it, it's God is such an amorphous word that I would always go, now what do you mean by that? <laughs> you know, you because know, you never, they could be, you know, talking to you one minute and, you know, running to hug a tree the next. And so, you know, By the way, tree huggers, (laughs) if they'll hug a tree, imagine what they'll do for you. (laughs) Nice people, but nicely wrong. So, you know, uh, so specify, specify your God. Uh, For me, when people say, uh, I'll say, I believe in God and I believe that Jesus is his son. I just specified it. Number three. Build a cage, right? Build a cage. In order to remain purely devoted, you can't just wake up and say, oh, wow, these, these things aren't in me anymore. Oh, brother, they're going to be in you to your dying breath. They're in everybody. So, for me, one of the things that I try to do uh, to keep me pure and going with the Lord is to build myself a cage. For example, uh, my wife and I have talked about this, so this is gonna be shocking to her. Uh, we we both kind of know that I could very easily become an alcoholic. Uh, she, you know, my, my family background, the abuse I had of it as, as younger, uh, the the, you know, the way sometimes I'll admit to her, man, what a couple of cases or a fifth could do right now for me, you know. Uh, so I know for me, you know, that that is one of those things where I'm not saying for you, I'm saying for me. That's one of those things where I need to build some boundaries around. And so uh, I've asked my wife, you know, can we not have alcohol in the home? Uh, I avoid the aisle with, you know, the alcohol. I avoid looking at the liquor stores. Again, it's not because I know I could sit down and have a drink. It's because I know in my addictive personality and in my weaknesses, I would just invite an onslaught of temptation to get drunk. And so I I just have decided that that is I I free myself by caging myself and I've caged myself in this little cage where it's just, you know, that that it's just avoidance at all costs because I know I'm two steps away from it. I know how quickly I I could decay once I just give in, give in, give in and finally, you know, no, that's for me. You recognize that there's other things, you know, that that are I I know I'm not going to go kill anybody. So you know, if I watch a movie and you know there's a little bit of violence, I'm not too worried about that. It's not the biggest boundary I have to build because I know I'm not. You know, I don't even own a gun yet. <laughs> <laughs> Riley Parker back there is working on me, so I, I don't. I don't. I don't own a gun yet, but. Uh. <laughs> but it's simple things, you know. Um, you know, ordering cable and passwording it so you don't have any you know, inappropriate things come up. Getting filters for your internet. You know, things where I build a cage so that I can be free. Even Even with the boundaries, you get blindsided, but at least you're blindsided not hanging out in the backyard. You know what I mean? And then number four, burying the past. Now, some of you, you probably need to deal with your past. You need to deal with it in order to bury it. So I am talking about you know, what the, what, what, what the devil may do in your life is take something that worked in your past. Say it was a, some sort of, you know, uh, uh, fighting or anger or, 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 you know, I know for one person, he had, he had um, just grown a habit of whenever there was an argument, walking out of the house. Well, that's no way to deal with an argument. But now to his dying breath, whenever things get tense and he just wants to walk, and so he has just made a sole decision. When this happens, I will do anything but walk. I'll fight it out till I'm divorced if I have to, but I'll do anything till I, w- I won't walk. And so, you know, it's, 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 bur- it's not allowing the familiar things of the past to rear itself up and kind of take over that comfort spot for you. Burying the past. Bow your heads with me. Worship team, come Come forward. As the worship team's getting set, I want to go back to Pergamum. You're sitting there. You're on that stone bench, and you've just heard all this. Maybe for some of you, it's a little offensive. Man, God, get out of my bedroom. God, get out of... What's the big deal with all this? For some of you, there may be... hmm. Eh, there's some things that you want, others of you there may be whoa, man, I am sitting on this cold stone bench, listening to this ancient preacher, and uh I feel like falling in love with Jesus all over again because jesus Jesus looks at the Caesars of our world and the Caesars of our lives and says. I will not bow. And then Jesus looks at us and says, you don't have to bow either. So I, just before we close service this morning, I'd like to make a very brief invitation. Is there anyone who would want to just specify your God this morning? Specify it. And say, you know what? I'm just going to renew my connection with Christ through relationship. You don't have to understand everything Jesus is about. I don't have to understand everything about my wife to love her. You don't have to understand everything about Jesus to love and follow him. But you can trust him that where he'll lead you in life will be good. So this morning, if you'd like to specify your God and say, I follow Jesus. Follow Him. I dare to be different. Take that step. Just look up at me real quick right now. Amen. 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 I'm impressed with how fast so many of you just looked right up. Amen. Jesus, I praise you, God. I thank you. Thank you, God, that we're rethinking church Lord, all all bets are off. All the cards are off the table. We're We're cleaning the blackboard and saying, Jesus, how do we do this? Come and be with us. Relate with us. It is enough that it is you. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Everybody stand with me. Take your hands up real high like this. Higher, higher. Want to hear some elbows pop? Yeah? All right. I know it's a little late. I apologize for that. But we have got to leave on a a power note, amen? So on that power note, let's hear a power chord. And let's go ahead and uh, go out with a blast.